0: episode 358, how health insurance plan design can lead to patients sacrificing needed care, their mental health, and sometimes buying groceries. Today, I speak with Wayne Jenkins, M.D.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking relentlessly seeking
0: value. First of all, anybody who thinks that your average citizen in the United States today is unaware of the financial double jeopardy of going to a doctor, going to an emergency room, getting a procedure is sorely mistaken. Americans today are well aware of the financial risk that they are taking by seeking healthcare in this country. To illustrate this point, let me read the first couple of sentences from a New York Times best-selling book review. The illness narrative, ending in financial ruin and decreased quality of life, has been one of the classic 21st century American stories. In her debut essay collection, Emily Maloney documents the intersections of money, illness, and medicine. For Maloney, the primary experience of receiving health is not merely a bodily or spiritual event, but always a financial one. She understands the relationship of money to being ill, to managing an unfathomable amount of debt. This is (laughs) a New York Times bestselling book in the beginning of 2022 add to this something I saw Pete Scruggs write on LinkedIn a while back, which I found actionable. He said patients selling personal items or taking on credit card debt after medical procedures is a failure of creativity in providing healthcare. It is possible to build creative health plans that reduce costs for patients with expensive procedures by giving wise guidance at the time patients need it the most. It is not enough for insurance to provide access to a wide range of health providers, but effectively leave the patient in debt after the procedures, are done. It is possible to buy health care so well in the local community that employers can reduce costs dramatically at the time most needed by those using health services. And lastly, let me quote from a recent article in JAMA by Dr. David Schenker, Dr. Arnold Milstein and Dr. Kevin Schulman, which says the financial consequence of an underperforming health insurance market I.e., one that is not holding down costs, diminishes the quality of life affordable to U.S. employees and their families, and the financial viability of employers not in the healthcare industry. So, today on the podcast, I am speaking with Wayne Jenkins, MD, who is chief medical officer over at Centivo. Before his move into value-based healthcare about 10 years ago, Dr. Jenkins started his career as a radiation oncologist. He has also served as the chief clinician at a bunch of large health systems. I wanted to have Dr. Jenkins on the show to discuss a recent report, which was published by Centivo, that methodically dissects how financial toxicity is affecting patients. This includes how it affects choices that employees, patients, members are making, both in terms of the care they decide they are willing to pay for or, more likely, the financial risks they're willing to take. In short, the three key findings of the report are as follows. Number one, workers face mounting healthcare affordability issues and health plan cost sharing features such as high deductibles are an underlying cause. Just a quick spoiler here. Do you know the percentage of employees who are foregoing buying groceries in order to afford medical expenses left on their shoulders by their high deductible health plan or by their health plan with excessive premiums? Going hungry isn't just for minimum wage workers. Number two, finding of the study. Medical expenses are a significant cause of mental health and well-being issues for both individuals and also families. And number three, the conventional wisdom that health plan members will never trade off certain offerings for greater savings is simply false. The big takeaway here, though, is that the situation that we have in this country today is not a secret amongst your average, regular American civilian. They do fully understand that by entering a healthcare setting, they are very well trading off. In their attempt to be healthy, And going to the doctor in pursuit of that aim, they are trading off their financial well-being. And that financial toxicity actually has health implications. If you can't afford groceries, for example, or your mental health suffers, we get ourselves rather rapidly into a downward spiral, as you may be able to see. Other episodes dedicated to the impact of financial toxicity and possible solutions are in the show notes. I'm just going to mention here quickly, we talked to Marty McCary about his book called The Price We Pay. There's an interview with Marshall Allen and then also a very interesting conversation with Mark Fendrick, M.D. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Wayne Jenkins, welcome to Relentless Health Value.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me.
0: So one thing that you were a part of over at Centivo was a recent report that focused on the, how the dare I say financial toxicity of the healthcare industry is really affecting patients, but even their, the decision-making, the financial decision-making that, that they're making and the way that they perceive that industry. We'll link to the report in the, in the show notes.
1: So last year, we conducted a survey with a little over 800 people in that employer-based age range, 18 to 64. We had three key findings. Some of these would not be surprising. Employees face mounting healthcare affordability issues and that high deductibles are often contributing to that affordability issue. Second, within that survey, these medical expenditures cause significant well-being issues, mental health issues for both the individuals and their families. And then the, the conventional wisdom that health plan members will never trade off Certain offerings, such as you know, their physician or their hospital, is not true. People are willing to make those trade-offs for affordability.
0: So we've got number one, which is basically financial toxicity contributed to by deductibles. We've got number two, this financial toxicity, medical expenses can be a significant cause of mental health and well-being issues. And then thirdly, the idea that no matter what, an employee won't sacrifice a broad PPO network, for example, in exchange for lower prices. Why don't we dig in here? If if we're talking about that first one, workers are facing healthcare affordability issues and deductibles that these high deductible health plans might be a contributor to that. These days, what is a normal, in air quotes, deductible?
1: When we talk about a normal deductible, we could define that as say a mean, a common deductible to really say what is common is in that one thousand to four thousand dollar range, two, three, four thousand dollars.
0: Which is a lot of money when most of us might know that the average American has what, like $400 in savings?
1: Yeah, there was a survey that came out, actually I think it was from the Federal Reserve two or three years ago, and and it was, if you had a $400 sudden charge, about about 40% would have difficulty financing that. They would have to go to family members, use a credit card if they had one, cut back on expenses.
0: And this is where that term functionally uninsured comes from. The idea that if you have a deductible that's five, six, 10 times higher than the amount of money that you have, you can't afford basically to buy in to your insurance benefit. So that kind of begs the question, like, what's the point then of having a deductible? I mean, is the point of having a deductible to not make it feasible for your average employee to actually use their benefit? Like, is there some sort of universal play? Like, is that the idea there? Or what does a plan gain or what's it supposed to gain by constructing a plan with a deductible that's higher than most people can afford? Or is this something that we just sort of backed ourselves into and there wasn't necessarily any sort of conscious thinking there.
1: Backing into it is probably a fair description. This is my observation over the past 10 to 15 years. In the higher deductible, if you think about it logically, well, it is logical for someone to have skin in the game in that they bear some of the cost, that idea of a consumer helping make wise choices. So I think there were very valid causes, and there's still reasonable causes to have a deductible. What's happened over this, I'll say, decade is the greater move to these high deductible plans is really a mismatch with the income and savings of much of the population that's being insured.
0: It's a matter of degrees here, that if the deductible is so far out of their range, that even if they're the thriftiest ever, they're not going to be able to use their insurance. Like, that's when things become bad.
1: I think it's important for the people who are making these, I'll call it purchasing decisions for health plans, to think about the employees that they're doing this on the behalf of. Let's use that $500 number. If someone is doing well and has $50,000 of reserve, that $500 may not change much of their decision-making. But if someone has $400 in reserves, that $500 absolutely will.
0: The advice then would be to really pay attention to the financial standing of the employees that the plan aims to serve. Because if they're all highly compensated executives, having a $500 deductible, you know, it could cause somebody to think twice or ask a couple of questions and act like Consumers. However, if that deductible is way out of whack with the average savings of the employee that is in the plan, then you just created a situation where people can't use their insurance, not one where anybody's going to act like a consumer. They're just going to abandon care.
1: Absolutely. I would say high deductible plans with a health savings account may work well for some people if they are able to financially navigate that, but it's not well-suited for other groups.
0: So then what legit are the problems that wind up transpiring when people cannot afford to actually use their insurance? If the height of my deductible discourages me from using high value services.
1: I'll give you actually a couple of numbers from the survey, skipping a visit to the emergency room for a true medical emergency people in the lower deductible less than 500 13 percent of people and it doubles in high deductible to 26 percent you can just see this linear increase as people's deductible goes up skipping a visit to the emergency room you can see the same skipping a primary care visit going up from about 25% up to about a third of the people.
0: People actually even decide that they're not going to go to the ER because they're scared of the price.
1: Yeah, this was not in our survey, but I was reading an article recently out of Boston, and they saw the same thing. As these high-cost deductibles went up, they saw people that were having true cardiac emergencies, missing visits, and subsequently having an increased risk of MI. And that's almost every measure you see that skipping of PCP visit, medication, needed ER visit, mental health counseling, all of those.
0: Obviously, the point of having health insurance is to be able to not fear a catastrophic event. There are proponents who suggest that the only thing our healthcare insurance should be used for is catastrophic emergencies, but it sounds like we're not even doing that well. (laughs) That if somebody is about ready to have a myocardial infarction, right, and they have chest pain or whatever, and they don't go to the ER because they're scared to use their insurance, that it's not only not working for the high value, lower cost type preventative things, but it's also not working in catastrophic situations.
1: Yeah, I think that comment about insurance has been needed for catastrophic situations is probably made for people that have more money in their bank than the people we're talking about. I think if they had $400 in their account, they might view it differently.
0: I would definitely recommend that people go back and listen to the conversation with Dr. Mark Fendrick, where he talks about how very often the highest value services should have an affordable price point to incent people to take to do the things that are high value.
1: I'm in absolute agreement with Dr. Fendrick's position.
0: Let's go to the number two broad categorical finding of the research report Sentivo conducted here. It's probably an obvious conclusion, but I actually haven't seen it written down before. Medical expenses are a significant cause of mental health and well-being issues.
1: Yeah, as you said, it, it seems like that is an obvious thing. But many of our, you know, respondents had significant financial sacrifice. Three and five of insured respondents had significant medical expenses causing them to make financial sacrifices. But to really get to the core of what you asked, of those who had those significant medical expenses, we asked questions about family well-being and that person's mental health. Like we discussed with that foregoing care, for those that had significant challenges, obviously that would affect their mental health, but it was much lower in the lower deductible so once again, with more out of pocket, it was adversely uh, affecting their mental health and their family's
0: well-being. Again, if you actually just sit there and think about that, it wouldn't seem shocking what, what you're saying. It's one of those things that, you know, in hindsight, you're kind of like, no kidding, that the second somebody realizes, okay, if I choose to use my insurance, then i am sacrificing my financial well-being to so its a choice between their health well-being and their financial well-being like that's a double jeopardy there
1: in the survey it was specifically asking about the kinds of sacrifices and the leading one is 51 cut back on spending on groceries so right there you're going to sort of the heart of the matter when people are there cutting back on their family's food supply even to the point we had a, a category of did i go hungry and sketch meals it was 10% of people that that's pretty profound when you think about the insured population in America
0: yeah and it's definitely one of these evil downward spirals because, okay, so someone skips groceries to afford their insurance, their mental health starts to deteriorate and nothing for nothing. But as we all know, cheaper calories are foods that are really bad for you, right? So in order to afford your health insurance, your mental health deteriorates, which reduces your physical health and food is medicine. There's also that. So by having health insurance, you actually reduce health.
1: No, I I think what you're saying is absolutely true. As you said, the idea if you have a higher deductible and you don't have much savings, does this affect your well-being and your family's well-being? That's intuitively obvious. I think what we helped quantify is, yes, you can just see it go up with the deductible. But I thought what was fascinating is when we really dig into okay, what do you cut back on? And then when you start to see it's our family's groceries and half the people or 10% of the people are going hungry, it really makes it more real and starts to to show how severe an outcome this is.
0: Now, are we talking mainly about an employer employing a whole lot of minimum wage employees here?
1: That's not actually the case. The majority of our respondents were over $75,000 in income. It really gets into even a higher income category than expected. Now, people that had over $10,000 in savings, they were not affected as inversely as, as you would expect.
0: So it sounds like the defining characteristic here is not necessarily the salary per se, but it's how much is in the bank, how much savings somebody has.
1: That is probably the most
0: predictive. So if I'm thinking about this like a CFO with purely financial, incentives here. High deductibles are a great way to cost shift to employees, right? Like they are a great way for a company to save money. The higher the deductible, the more the employee is is bearing. So I could look at this as a very much a zero sum game. If I am that CFO, why do I change what I'm doing? We talked about mental health. Okay, so my employees are a little stressed out. You know, again, if I'm, I'm playing the CFO on TV, okay, so they don't go get their diabetic eye exams. And also, by the way, they're not going to the ER, which also sounds like a cost savings to me. What would you say to a CFO who was thinking in that way?
1: The CFO could say, well, let's take it out of the high deductible and move it over into a higher premium cost. That does feel like. You know, a zero sum game. We talk about that term of actuarial value. Either way, if the CFO says, well, we're going to pay 80% of it, you can put it in the high deductible or you can put it in the premium. That is somewhat of a zero sum game. And I think that is sort of open for discussion, giving employees the option of putting more of it to the premium, but having less in the high deductible. But I, I think about thinking of it as a CFO is the sort of search for value, if you could. Are there other ways to approach this in a marketplace to get more value for what you're paying for so this problem can be addressed?
0: You're suggesting that there's a way to have your cake and eat it too as a CFO. We shouldn't be satisfied with, if I wanna save money, I have to do this at the expense of my employee's health and wellbeing
1: to delve more deeply into that question. I would say in terms of recruiting talent, keeping people, keeping a healthy workforce, I think there can be an argument to be made to ease the burden of some of these high deductible plans. But I also think there may be alternatives in a market to get a better value for what we're paying, pass some of that on to the people, potentially save some of that money ourselves and come up with alternatives to, to what's out there.
0: And And that might lead us into the third finding of the report, which is that there's this conventional wisdom, which basically puts the CFO or anybody in the benefit space and in between a rock and a hard place, if you believe this conventional wisdom, that health plan members will never trade off certain offerings to derive savings from that. Like, for example, everybody wants a broad PPO network and they're willing to pay whatever it takes in order to achieve that broad PPO network. You know, like everybody wants open access or access to, and I say that kind of in air quotes, because if you can't afford to go there, do you really have access? But but that aside, everybody wants the biggest provider directory in the universe. Like that's what good insurance consists of. So if you don't offer that, then you have disgruntled employees. Could you just dig into the findings of the report, which seem to be counter to that conventional wisdom?
1: Let's talk about the report in terms of being counter to that wisdom, and then we we can delve more deeply. When we ask the respondents are you willing to make trade-offs for cost reduction in what you pay and we we put that cost reduction the 10 to 30 percent rate we had multiple categories you know a limited pharmacy choice half said they would or require referrals for a specialist visit half said they would do that choose a uh, primary care. Once again, about half. So when we looked at sort of all categories, a few more categories combined, about three quarters of people said, yes, I'd be willing to make trade-offs for something that was more affordable for them.
0: If you promised a savings of, what'd you say, 10 to 33 percent?
1: That was the number we used in that
0: survey. Right. So basically you said to employees, look, you might save a third on your health insurance expenses or your health expenses, 10 to 33%. Would you be willing to do that if we limited, like you had to go to this pharmacy or you had to use this mail order pharmacy and half the patients, half the members were like, okay, if I could save a third, up to a third on my health costs, then I would be willing to limit my pharmacy choices. And then the same thing with the PCP. If you said you could only go to, you know, like I know you have your PCP in your hometown that you've been going to for years, but if you you must choose one of our PCPs, then you can save a bunch of money. And same thing with referrals. You have to go to your PCP in order to get a referral. So in each of those discrete categories, when offered, you had people who were willing to basically constrain their network, so to speak, if they could save money. Yes.
1: Yeah. Usually about half would say, yeah, I would take that one. But if you add them all together, about three quarters, were willing to undergo some form of constraint.
0: Given all of this, what do you think plan sponsors should do? What should they be adding to their consideration set as they contemplate plan designs moving forward?
1: It's really important that employees have a choice in their health plan. For example, for some people, a high deductible open access that can go anywhere may work well for them and their family. But for other people, as we see in this survey and as we would intuitively know, that doesn't work well. And I think having the health plan choice, it gives more financial viability in addition to that open access.
0: There are various financial price points of the plans that are on offer. And right now, generally speaking, I would say plan sponsors tend to look at just the premium level and sort of, I'm not gonna say disregard the deductible, but like if we're thinking about the slate of plans on offer, the lower cost premium ones always come complete with a higher cost deductible. As you
1: said, that in some sense can be a zero sum game. Do you get it in the premium or is it paid in the higher deductible? So I think that's where it balances out. I want to delve into this idea of there may be other ways to do it. I think that in many markets, there may be, I'll call them value-based players, in which if an employee, is willing to limit certain choice and to do certain things, there may be a value there that can be realized where it no longer is that zero-sum game. Thinking about it from that CFO standpoint, I think that any CFO that looks at okay, let's buy our whatever supplies we need for the company. If we can get a better value, we should potentially go there. And I think there are value choices in the market that may help negate some of the problems that we were just discussing.
0: an employer looks around or works with a consultant who looks around and finds that in that local market, there are providers who are able to provide demonstrably better quality for lower cost. I mean, maybe they're in some risk-based model. Maybe they have a history of, of success based on the RAND report or whatever research you're looking at. But if you can identify these really high quality providers, then you can narrow the network to get more, for your money, reducing low value care, reducing crazy high cost settings, et cetera, so that you're truly offering for both the employer and the employee a lower price point.
1: That's exactly right. Let let me illustrate that. If you had just say one health system and the price is the price, you're not going to be able to do that. What you described is, let's say there's two or three options that give let's call it adequate coverage, then I think that's where you look for that value. So there are markets where you may not be able to find the value. So I don't want to say, oh, you can always find value. But I think there are many markets where value is available and that that can help solve that problem for both the employee and for the employer.
0: I know a lot of people are really gun shy about narrowing the network because, you know, every time someone says narrow networks, somebody else brings up the big HMO Fandango of the 90s, which didn't go so well. I'm understanding you saying something that is different than that let's just call it learning, if we're thinking about this in a learning mode.
1: We talked about earlier that idea of conventional wisdom. And I think conventional wisdom may be left over from the nineties. In the nineties was when I started practicing. So I'll comment on it from a receiving end. I was in the specialty world. I was a radiation oncologist in the beginning of my career. I used to see things that were very upsetting, this idea of the gatekeeper model. It felt like people were being denied care that was bad for the members. That was bad for the doctor-patient relationship. That was my personal take on it. But if we if we look at about 10 to 15 years ago, and I made reference to this in the beginning, with the advent of these uh, what's called ACO models, accountable care organization, value-based models, I really think that there started to be a look of how do you measure quality? Are there ways to keep people out of the hospital? Are there ways to you know keep people healthy with chronic illnesses? And, really look at higher quality with controlling costs. And I think that's really coming to the fore here. As I look around the country, I think there is no correlation between the pricing and the quality. You can often get a better pricing from uh, higher quality. And I think a lot of this is the outgrowth of that value-based movement.
0: Effectively, what you're saying is that building these narrow networks has to be a science. It's not just you're finding the cheapest providers or the will the, the providers that are willing to cut costs or however, I don't have no idea how they did it in the 90s it seemed to be very financially driven and a little bit less healthcare driven, but like not going down that route, really finding high-quality providers who are willing to engage in some risk-based contracting, some sort of capitation with quality measure type play. And if you manage to do that, then you can get what in a lot of cases could actually be higher quality care because generally speaking the quality of the care is commensurate with the quality of the provider like that's something that has been shown while at the same time not having to pay more.
1: Yeah, I mean it's fundamentally different than the 90s. Uh, in the 90s I would see entities that would give these discounts and then they would overutilize to make up for it. So that was bad all the way around. But this is truly fundamentally different. And I'll go back into my history with when I was at one of the health systems, a large employer came to us and said, Wow, when when our employees come to you, it's eighteen percent less. Why is that? And I said, You're benefiting from our Medicare ACO models we put in. Um, we're keeping people out of the hospital. We're not admitting people with low acuity conditions. We're doing a better job of managing their chronic conditions. People go to their primary care team before they show up in the emergency room and run up those costs. So I really do think there was a there's been a real sea change that have been adopted by different organizations, whether health systems systems, systems, some large physician practices, individual physician practice, but really around that idea of more value, higher quality and controlling the
0: cost. Let me just go back to the number two finding of that report. The current state of health insurance in this country causes mental health issues, stress, anxiety. If you narrow the network, does that cause a different kind of anxiety? You know what I mean? Let's just say that we take the advice that seems to be pretty self-evident based on the, the findings of your survey. Does a different kind of mental health struggle emerge or do you have any evidence that suggests using a high-quality, narrower network, mental health issues improve?
1: This is a key point to me. This idea of a narrow network may adversely affects someone. These are often very high quality health systems that are quote, narrowed. And that may be where many of the people already get their care. But let me go back to the idea of choice. What I see in these markets emerging is people have a choice of the broad access with paying a higher cost, maybe the high deductible, a higher premium, or we'll call it narrow. But to me, the narrow may not be that narrow, but it's a choice that an individual makes. And if you and they say, oh, that looks very good for me and my family, and it may cost me 20% less, to me, the stress level starts to go down. If you think about stress for people, there's controllable and uncontrollable stress. This starts to give people a choice, more choice and helping alleviate stress when they have that option.
0: I guess if it's done really well. I mean, if you said to somebody, look, there are platinum, gold, silver, bronze, and no medal winning provider organizations, you can only go to the platinum or the gold. (laughs) That's our narrow number. That's right. I could see that that actually would be like, Oh, great. You know, thanks for figuring that out for me. I almost have a backstop for who I choose and I'm I know I'm gonna get the great provider. I feel like if it's done in that context and probably communicated in that context also, there would be appreciation amongst employees that they're getting in a way that's a VIP plan if, if it's positioned yeah. properly, right?
1: It may be helpful if I just give an example. A narrow network in Los Angeles might be UCLA and in San Diego, Scripps, two extremely highly regarded systems that many people would be very satisfied in going to if they can also save some money doing it. And I use those as, as two examples. You can use examples elsewhere. So I think what you, what you talked about, it's not the marginal players giving a discount. This may be very well-recognized entities that have engaged in value-based programs that they think they can pass that on to, ultimately to the members, their patients.
0: You're touching on a really important point that a lot of times it's the lower value provider organizations that are extremely expensive, just all in if you combine the price point with the low value care that tends to happen with just everything together.
1: Yeah, often if you look at some of those low value providers, they will often go to be the only game in town where everybody has to go to them. I think you can see that in different markets.
0: In areas where there are choices, then then creating these narrow networks becomes possible. And as you said, there are certainly some areas where sadly that's not possible, but here we are.
1: I'll say on the CFO comment. If the CFO looked and said, okay, it's narrow. Oh, well, here's who it is. Okay, it's narrow, but it's excellent that's a good choice and it's less expensive. So narrow and excellent is not a bad choice for people.
0: Dr. Jenkins, is there anything that I neglected to ask you that you want to add
1: here? If I was just to summarize a few comments, I would say being on the front lines of care delivery, I saw many people having difficulty affording their care. I saw this firsthand. I think being able to alleviate that is not only good for someone's business who's purchasing this, but It's going to turn out that they have a much healthier group of people working for them, less stress.
0: Where can people learn more about your work and Centivo if they are interested in learning more? And we will definitely put a link to this particular report in the show notes.
1: They just search Centivo, Centivo.com. They can easily find me. I'm glad to communicate with people about it.
0: Dr. Wayne Jenkins, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me. I really appreciated it